0: Well, if you have a Bible, turn open to the book of Ephesians. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's going to be page 976. We come now to chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, and Paul is excited to show these Ephesian believers the reality of what's taken place in their lives. In chapter 1, he was very excited to talk to them about the salvation that they had gotten through uh, God. And he was excited to see how the whole Godhead was involved in that salvation. How God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were all involved. The Father electing the Son, redeeming and the Spirit, sealing. You remember that a few weeks ago. And then the second half of chapter 1, Paul broke out into a prayer that in light of the fact that these people had now been saved, they given this greatest of all blessings, that they would be able to grasp the plan and purposes, and most importantly, the power of God that was available to them. And so as he rolls into chapter 2, but by the way, he didn't write chapter 2. This was not inspired by the Spirit of God. These were just chapter and verse divisions that we put in later. But as he rolls into what we call the second chapter, Paul wants to make it very clear that these Ephesian believers understand exactly what has taken place in them getting saved by God saving them. Now, Christians talk a lot about this term being saved. We use it all the time. It's a question we ask other people. Are you saved? It's a, it's a time we designate when we got, came to know Christ. I got saved in 1986. That has a very rich and thick meaning And whatever it means, it's got to at least include a little of what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, because that word, that expression itself, being saved, shows up a couple of times in our text. So whatever it is in your mind of what it means to be saved, it has to include what we're going to talk about this morning. And these 10 verses couldn't describe two situations that, that couldn't be further apart from one another. It, it goes from the, the depths about uh, the pessimism of man and rises to the heights of optimism of God's grace. It is typical of the kind of realism that marks the Bible, which makes it so refreshing to read. You see, the Bible is, is never shrinks back from describing the real despair and difficulty of this world because the Bible also understands the hope and the genuine optimism and hope people have. But at the same time, the Bible's never naive about talking about hope. It's never kind of this rose-colored glasses, religion that's nice and, and, and comforting. It's, uh, it's gritty, it's real, because this hope understands that this hope exists in the midst of real difficulty in a fallen world. The Bible is this unique combination of of genuine optimism amidst real struggles. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, uh, it breaks down uh, as it shows us this real despair going to this real hope. And we see how it breaks down easily in three ways. Verses 1 through 3, what we are saved from, verses 4 through 7, what we are saved through. And then verses 8 through 10, what we are saved for. So our passage looks at what we are saved from, what we're saved through, and what we are saved for. And that's how we're going to look at it this morning. And Jared has already read our text to you, and we're just going to jump into the first section, verses 1 through 3, what they are saved from, what we are saved from. And in these three verses, what Paul is describing is, the, is, a, is a comprehensive view of the human condition apart from God, and it's not a very description if you were paying attention as Jared read it. Paul says to these Ephesians that before being in Christ, they were dead. That's how he described them, dead. Now, obviously, Paul does not mean physically, but he means spiritually and nonetheless important. These people, these Ephesians, people outside of Christ, were alienated and cut off from the true source of life, so much so that Paul describes them as being dead. And they were dead because, did you notice, of their trespasses and sins? They were dead because of their trespasses and sins in which they once walked, verse 1. This phrase walked or walk, you're going to find a lot in the book of Ephesians. And you're going to find that actually a lot in the New Testament. Uh, it comes from the Greek word peripateo. It means to, to have a lifestyle, a trajectory. It's kind of a similar way we would use the expression walk the talk. It's not describing a stroll, a leisurely walk in the park. It's describing something about someone's life. It's, it's very popular in our world today to talk about our lives as being on a journey. You've heard people talk about themselves that way, that they're on a journey. The metaphor carries the idea that uh, we are uh, on a direction. There's a purpose. There's a, a goal, a telos for our lives such that we are on a journey. There's a destination we're heading to. A walk can just be an, a nice casual thing. A journey has a beginning and an end. And so that's what this idea here is Paul is saying as that you once walked in this way. Apart from God, Paul is saying people make life choices that ironically enough don't lead to life but lead to death. And he uses these two words, trespasses and sins. Now, if you've been in a church long, you've often heard the word uh, sins, and we, we kind of use that word as a, as a generic word. It kind of means any offense or any way we have somehow offended a holy God. But did you know that there's also technical uses of those words? If you're observing as you read the Bible, you not only see the word sins, you'll see the words transgressions, trespass, uh, errors. You see all these kinds of other words, and they're bringing out different nuances of this general concept of sin. And So Paul is using these more technical meanings here. So he says to the Ephesians, you were all dead the way you walked in your trespasses and sins. A trespass, you've seen these signs, no trespassing allowed. A trespass is to go beyond a boundary, to to go beyond what is acceptable or appropriate, to do something you shouldn't do. And a sin in this particular usage here in Paul is to miss the mark, to not meet the expectation, to fail to keep a rule. And so in one sense, in the positive sense, a trespass is the things you're doing that you shouldn't do, whereas a sin, in a negative sense, is not doing the thing that you ought to be doing. And so Paul, by using these two words, he's trying to comprehensively say that in totality, we were dead in these ways because we were completely lights out to the things of God. Not only would we do the things we shouldn't do, trespasses, we wouldn't do the things we ought to do, sins. He says, your lives apart from Christ, before Christ, were completely lights out to the things of God. Lights out so comprehensively. In the book of James, James gets on a subject similar to this. And there's expressions we've heard of sins of omission, you've heard, and sins of commission. It's the same kind of idea. That sin is is so huge, it's not just the bad things I do, It's the good things I should do that I don't do. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Apart from Christ, apart from being in God, these Ephesian Christians were completely lights out to what the Lord wanted of their lives. Not only not doing what was expected of them, but doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And notice another word that Paul uses here. You were following after these things. What were they following after? And Paul mentions two things briefly in passing. He says the things of this world, the course of this world, and following the prince of the power of the air. So they were following the world and the devil. Now as interesting as it would be to drill down into defining what these words mean, what does it mean, the the world, uh, what does it mean, the devil, that's enticing. We're not going to spend our time there. We're actually going to go to verse 3 because that's Paul's main point. But just suffice to note that when Paul says the world, as much as in the New Testament, he's not talking about the natural order of things. He's actually talking about a system of ideas, of values, of intentions that stand in opposition to the things of God. That's what he means by the world. So they were following after the things of this world. They were following after ideas and values that were against the things of God. And he says, you're following after uh, the prince of the, the, the power of the air. He's referring to the devil. And I know that that might be intriguing. Well, what's that like? And I'll just say briefly, if you're a note taker, write down 1 Timothy 3, I think it's verse 6. It's interesting because Paul almost offhandedly talks about uh, not bringing in a new convert into the faith and putting him in in positions of leadership, lest this person fall into the the trap of the devil, which was conceit, self-centeredness. And so here's where we get to the link in verse 3. So we had the world, the devil, and here's the explanation. Verse 3 explains how we followed after the world and the devil. Now the NIV, if you have the NIV, this brings it out a little bit better, but let me look at it here in verse 3 in the ESV. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived. How? In the passions of our flesh. What did that look like? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Notice that Paul is saying that in Ephesians 2, being self centered, being self focused, carrying out the passions and the desires of the flesh and the mind is the definition of worldliness and living like the devil. I want to read that one more time. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were lights out to the things of God because you were walking after the things of this world and the prince of the power of the air. And how did you do that? You did that by carrying out the passions and desires of your own flesh and mind. He's basically saying, look, you want to know what it means to be worldly? Do you want to know what it means to be following after the devil himself? It's being centered on yourself, fixated on yourself, self-centered, we putting ourselves in the center rather than God. And by doing that, ironically enough, thinking that it's going to give us life, but as Paul says, it only brought them death. So the trespasses and sins that mark their life were simply the natural result of living a self-fixated life. That's his argument that he's laying out there. That you were dead because you lived in trespasses and sins and you lived in trespasses and sins following just like the world, just like the devil. What did that look like? Being completely self-centered, putting yourself in the center of your life rather than God. And so all the death that comes from that is the natural result of a life that's fixated on itself. Now Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, in his lectures on the book of Romans has probably the best and briefest definition of sin. He says, The human heart is in curvatus in se. And just in case you don't know Latin, that means curved in on itself. That the human heart is curved in on itself. It is self-centered, looking inside. All of life is seen through the filter of self-interest. It's amazing that Martin Luther, the man who God would use to start the Protestant Reformation, would say, look, you want to understand what sinfulness is? Sinfulness in the human heart is being curved inward and focused only on yourself. The sinful heart uses everything but serves nothing, is what Luther would say. See, the essence of a sinful heart is not merely denying that God exists. It's acknowledging and thinking that you are him. Let me say that again. This, the essence of a sinful heart is not denying that God doesn't exist. It's acting as if you were him. Now, of course, nobody would actually say that. We don't ever say those kinds of things because, quite frankly, that just seems so arrogant. And because we want people to think well of us because we are curved in on ourselves, we'd never say such things, but we live those things. We act that way. You see, Jesus says in John 10, 10, that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But here's the catch. The devil never shows up and says, hi, I'm the devil, and I've come to steal, kill, and destroy. If he did that, nobody would take him up on his word, would they? The devil never shows up acting like the devil. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. If you read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, you read the Bible, the devil shows up saying anything but those things that he's here to still kill, and destroy. He shows up promising what? Autonomy. He shows up promising freedom. He shows up promising whatever it takes for you to remove God functionally from the center of your life and putting yourself or something else there. Now, keep your finger in Ephesians. I want you to go back to the book of Genesis to see this happening. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at briefly verses 1 through 6. This is page 2 if you're using our pew Bibles. And, and, and folks, if you grew up in the church, the tendency can be to say, what, can, what more can I get from Genesis chapter 3? I've read it so many times. I remember as a child in Sunday school. But can I suggest to you that the first three chapters of Genesis are probably the most significant anthropological teachings on what it means to be a human being? If you've ever taken an anthropology class, we talk about culture, we talk about languages, but but partly we don't talk about the most important thing, and that's what it is to be a human being. And Genesis lays that out beautifully. I'm tempted to launch into another sermon on this, but I'm not, so we're just going to read it and tie back into Ephesians. Genesis chapter 3 says this, and really dial in here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who ate also. What is the great scheme of the devil? What is the great scheme of the devil here in Genesis 3? Notice, all he is doing, all he is doing in this this pivotal point in the history of humanity is causing Eve to doubt the Word of God, right? Chapter 3, second half of uh, verse 1, did God actually say this? Did did He really say that, Eve? Were you sure you heard Him correctly? So he just makes Eve doubt the word of God, and then notice what he does next. He causes Eve to doubt the goodness and character of God, verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will will surely not die. Here's why. God's jealous. Look at verse 5. He knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be just like him. Eve, he's jealous. Worse off, Eve, he's holding back from you and Adam. The reason he doesn't want you to eat of that is because when you eat of that, you're going to be just like him. Do you notice this great scheme of the enemy is very, very subtle and simple. He just has to make humanity doubt the word of God and doubt the character and goodness of God. See, humanity was made to be governed by the goodness of God through his perfect word. But when humanity said, no, I don't want to be governed by you or your word. I want to be governed by my own word. That was the first step to becoming curved inward. Life is no longer about what God intended, what God's plans are for the world he created. Life is about my purposes and me. That, my brothers and sisters, that, my friends, is the great deception of Genesis 3. As horrible as famine and poverty and disease and war and death are, they're not as bad, not nearly as bad as doubting the word of God and the character and goodness of God. Because once you can do that, all these other things are the natural result of those actions. And Satan goes right to the core of it. Now, can you imagine, my friends, a world full of billions of individuals who are living for no other purpose except their own desires and self centered experiences and expectations? What kind of world would that be? <laughs> One of the most famous uh, French philosophers, he was an existentialist by the name of Jean Paul Sartre, or Sartre, however you want to pronounce his name. His most famous line comes from a play that he authored called No Exit. Now, the plot line of the play, let me give it to you really quick, is basically there are three individuals who are in the afterlife, and their eternal punishment is to stay in a single room with one another, yet they all still have their desires and passions in life, And none of the other two, there's three of them there, none of the three of them are interested in helping the other meet their own desires and passions. And so the whole play is about these three people consumed with their own natural desires and passions, and nobody else in the room is willing at all to even acknowledge the other person's needs, let alone to help them. So their punishment is to spend eternity with other individuals just as self-absorbed and self-centered as themselves. And Sartre's famous line is, hell is other people. Now, commonly when people say that, what they mean is that, because people are hard to get along with, and we don't love their jerks, and they're different from each other. But they completely miss Sartre's point. And that is, we are so consumed by our own wants and so self-centered that it's actually hell itself being with others, seeing in a mirror what you are yourself. And apart from the saving work of Christ that transforms and changes us to live for the purposes of another, Satra is absolutely right. In verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2 you can go back to that, sum up the condition of the human race. Outside of God's saving grace, the human race is dead and enslaved to try and fulfill their own desires and passions in a world that was never intended to fulfill either. Paul's saying, this is what you once were. So how? How? do they go from self-centeredness to something different? How do the Ephesian believers, how do these Ephesian Christians go from the self-centeredness to living for what God intended and how does that happen for us? If I can use the the Genesis 3 kind of language, how do people who are committed to their own ways, how do people that are just focused on what they want and have lost the peace that was once ours get that back? And that's what the next four verses are, are are about. So let's look at verses four through seven. That's what we were saved from, this kind of self-centeredness that's curved in on itself. What do we save through? And Paul wants to make it very clear. He mentions it actually five times in these four verses. Let me just pick it up in verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, here we go, I'm going to count them off, made us alive together with Christ, number one, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him, number two, and seated with him, number three, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, number four, at the end of verse seven. His immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, number five. Five times in four short verses, Paul is talking about how does the change happen? He says, in Christ, in him, in him, in Christ. Theologians call this union with Christ. A practical way to look at this is our identity being in Christ. Now, I want you to see this amazing parallel. I have a dry cough coming up here. Let me avoid this. Look at Ephesians, write this down. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. What Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 talks about the immeasurable power of God in raising Christ and seating him in the heavenlies. Then notice what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. The immeasurable grace of God exercised in raising us up with Christ and seating us with him. So, here it is. God demonstrates his immeasurable power in raising Christ and seating him in the heavenlies. And in chapter two, God displays his immeasurable grace in raising us up and seating us with Christ. Did you catch that? Now, write this down, or go with me to Colossians. There's a couple books to the right. Colossians chapter two. Paul writes a similar thing in verses 12 through 13. I'm trying to build a case here. So Paul writes in Colossians 2, chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. <clears throat> and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. So Paul is saying the same thing in Colossians chapter 2. Write down Romans 6, verses 3 through 11. Paul is saying the same thing. What's his point? We are identified with Christ. Human beings were meant to derive their fundamental meanings not from themselves. We were not meant to derive our meanings, our purposes from ourselves, which is why self-centeredness is tantamount to human rebellion and sin. Human beings... Were meant to derive their meaning from another. I know that's so countercultural, but that is what Scripture teaches us. I want to read to you a, an insightful op-ed I got from the BBC magazine a couple years ago that helped us make the point. A young man named Neil Borman. He writes this. From an early age, I have been taught that to be accepted, to be lovable, to be cool, one must have the right stuff. At junior school, I tried to make friends with the popular kids, only to be ridiculed for the lack of stripes on my trainers. Once I nagged my parents to the point of buying me the shoes, I was duly accepted at school, and I became much happier. As long as my parents continued to buy me the brands, life was more fun. Now at age 31, I still behave according to the playground law. The manner in which we spend our money defines who we are. In this secular society of ours, where family and church once gave us a sense of belonging, identity, and meaning, there is now Apple, Mercedes, and Coke. So this is why I'm burning all my stuff, to find real happiness, to find the real me. See, Neil is making an important point here, and the point he's making is that we are all living out of some identity. For Neil, at least early on in life, it was to be one of the cool kids. And as long as he could get the right stuff, that worked for him. But now let's go back and tie this into what we're learning. Genesis chapter three. Humanity, excuse me, Genesis chapter one. Humanity was created to reflect God. That's what it means to be an image bearer. Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and 27, when God creates man and woman, he says this, so God created man In his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. To be made in the image of God means to reflect him as an image bearer. And when humanity rejected God to be his image bearer in Genesis chapter 3, we didn't stop being in essence what we are. We just chose to no longer reflect him. My point is this, we will always reflect something. Because our essence as a human being is to be an image bearer, to be a reflector of something else. Our glory does not come from us. It comes from reflecting something else. And when we rejected God, we didn't stop being in essence what we were created to be. We will always be reflecting something. We just now choose to reflect other things by identifying with those other things. And this language of identification and image bearing is worship language. The American novelist, David Foster Wallace, before he committed suicide, I think it was in 2008, got it absolutely right when he said this. He was addressing a graduating class from Kenyon College. Now, if you know Foster Wallace, he's not a Christian. He writes this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing type to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing... You will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid. and You will need ever more power over others to numb you from your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being as smart, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. Here's what we're getting at. We are all living out our lives based on some kind of identity. And what that identity is will determine the values, the behaviors, and the trajectory of our life. Wallace was spot on when he says we worship. What we worship with, we identify with. That's the way humans work. That's the way it works with identities and worship. They dictate the life script that you live your life by. What you wear, what you do, what you spend your money on, what you give your attention to. All those things, they help order your life and help you get through life. That's what Wallace was saying. That's what the scriptures are teaching. And here's the thing. All other identifications other than Christ's identification are life draining. They will not save us, rather they condemn us. You know it's because you can never live up to it. You'll never be popular enough, you'll never be strong enough, you'll never be good enough, beautiful enough, rich enough, wise enough, successful enough, and even if you can attain that, it's only momentary because you can't maintain it long enough. And we are all killing ourselves by adopting different identities, aren't we, right? You see it all around. People spend money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't even know, right? USA Today just said five out of ten Americans two weeks ago, five out of ten Americans will go into financial debt to take a vacation. So we take these ideal vacations promising us rest, but they do nothing. They put us in financial debt and more stress or we have to compromise what we believe or adopt new behaviors we wouldn't normally do to fit in with the in-group because we don't like being on the outside, and all of this is exhausting. And that's how people live. You see, Jesus does the opposite. Philippians chapter two says, Jesus took on the identity of one of us, and he broke the back of all these other identity frauds by living perfectly in obedience to the Father And as a result, he says to us, look, you were intended to be mine, and I'm making you mine. In John 10, 10, the second half of that verse, the first half is the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The second half, Jesus says, I've come to give life, and life abundantly. And when you fail me, I won't punish you or abandon you like these other idolatries will. Like these other identities, when when you fail them, they will punish you. I don't, because it says, I am rich in grace and mercy. See, when you grasp this reality, it blows away your desire to focus on yourself because you realize the very thing you're trying to get with all these identities is empty, and the very real identity is available to you in Christ. That's what Paul is repeating in verses 5 and 8. By grace, you have been saved. Both times, it's in the perfect tense, which means something that happened in the past with ongoing present results today. The way you escape a life of self-centeredness is through Christ-centeredness. The way you get a life of Christ-centeredness is to identify with him and his work in your whole life. And in doing that, in doing that very thing, the abundant life that you think you can get through your own desires, apart from Christ, actually become yours through Christ because he's the only one that has abundant life to be given. And that's what Paul is saying. How we go from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness is identifying with him, making our lives completely about Christ. Now, what does this abundant life look like? We have to hurry on to verses 8 and 10. That's what he's talking about here. So he talks about what we're saved from is this self-centeredness that, that, that just corrupts us. What we're saved through is Christ-centeredness, identifying with him and what we are saved from in verses 8 through 10. And he states it negatively and positively. Positively. Negatively, he says, you no longer boast. Positively, he says, you walk in the good works that God prepared for you. What does it mean to no longer boast? You see, in all these identities, we're clothing ourselves, we're covering ourselves, trying to help, trying to tell ourselves that we're good enough, we're strong enough, we're smart enough, we can do this. He says, Look, that that's not working. All right, we have an expression in our culture. It's called when you're kind of in your 40s and 50s, we say it of men typically they're going through what? An identity crisis we jokingly say that but what are we actually saying functionally that the life script that they had up to this point is no longer working for them and they're desperately trying to find a new one to have confidence in that's what's going on and we not only see it in the 40s and 50s have you heard about the quarter life crisis now Apparently now you're in your 20s and 30s, you can have a quarter-life crisis. And then because that doesn't work, you move on to the midlife crisis. The point is, they're tapping into the reality that life scripts of this world don't work. Right? So no matter how many Harley Davidsons you get, no matter how young you can make yourself look, it will not give you what you're looking for because it's an identity that drains you. It doesn't supply you. And that's what a boast is. It's something that we're we're confident in. And Paul says, look, you no longer boast. You have nothing to boast. After all, it's a gift. And by definition, a gift is free. You just receive it. There's only one kind of boasting we have if we're going to boast. Galatians 6.14, Paul writes this. Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know why he boasts on the cross? Because he says, my confidence is no longer in what I'm doing because I can't do enough. My confidence is in Christ because he did it and it's a gift to me and I can also get off this endless treadmill of trying to convince myself I'm good enough by doing all these things. He says, I no longer have to boast. So negatively, my confidence isn't in the things I used to be confident in anymore. I don't have to be the most successful, the most popular, the most wealthy, the most this, the most that. All those identities were life-sucking I have an identity now that's life-giving. I'm raised with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenlies. I am an adopted one of God, chosen from the foundations of the world. Boy, isn't it, wouldn't it be nice to be freed from the melancholy desire to please everyone else, knowing that you please the Father. And so Paul says, you, you don't have to boast. And the secondly, positively, He says, you do good works. And notice how Paul ends this chapter or ends this section in the way he started it with the same word picture, walking. But it's not a walk that leads to death. It's a walk that leads to life in these works. But these are not works that we do to try and justify ourselves or get our salvation. These are the results. Another reformer, John Calvin said, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. We don't do good works to earn merit with God. The reason we do good works is because we want to be a reflection. We want to image our gracious, good, merciful, and kind God to the world around us. That's what we're doing. That's what we're saved to. So death to life, wrath to mercy, self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness, that is what it means to be saved. We are saved by grace through faith, and it happens in the sovereignty of God in a moment. Even if you can't remember when that moment took place, it happens like that. But it takes a lifetime, doesn't it, of of applying it, of appreciating it, and living in light of it. But it starts with recognizing I have these default settings of identities. And this can be even as a Christian, right? That's just one more identity, but it's just one more identity, and amongst a plethora of other identities, it starts by saying, that's got to be my identity. That is who I am. We'll get into more of that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your Word. Father, we thank you that though written 2,000 years ago, Paul's words are just as relevant today Father, I pray that as people, you would be so kind to help us to realize, do we live with a certain kind of identity that's separate from the identity that we actually profess with our lips? Do our lives reflect a different life script than the one given to us in Scripture? Father, if they do, would you allow us to turn from those, recognizing that they don't bring life, they bring death, and that the life script you give to us in the Son, Jesus Christ, is the only life that brings abundant life. Father, help us to press into that. Help us to make that a reality, we pray. In the matchless name of Christ, amen.